You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Philip Michael to discuss how he got started in real estate after coming to the US and the creative real estate projects he's working on leveraging technology. Philip is a real estate entrepreneur, investor, and author of Real Estate Wealth Hacking. He's also the founder of WealthLab.co, CEO of Nice, and columnist for Forbes, Black Enterprise, Entrepreneur, and more. If you remember from last week's episode, I talked about how in this week's episode with Philip, we talk about seller credits. In last week's episode, I talked about my house hack and how I utilize seller credits. I know a lot of you guys really enjoy this concept, have questions about it, want to utilize it in your portfolio. A lot of you have reached out to me on Instagram. So just a reminder, we talk about that quite a bit in depth here with Philip. I explained the strategy to him. He actually He's done millions and millions and millions of dollars in real estate, and this actually isn't a strategy that he's used. Yet, when I talk to him about it, he absolutely loves it. So we do a little bit of a deep dive into that as well. So I hope you guys find that useful. You'll see Philip brings a very high energy, creative approach to real estate, and he's working on a lot of really cool things. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Philip Michael. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Philip Michael. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you, man. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm very well. Thanks for joining me. Tell us a bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today. Well, in brief, I'm a crazy Danish kid from Denmark who somehow ended up here, built a real estate portfolio with absolutely no knowledge. And then once we got to the point where I'm like, okay, I had no knowledge, I went for it anyway. This isn't rocket science, but persistence isn't rocket science. It's just being willing to persist. And I said, you know what? In addition to just doing that, why don't I give others that realization that you don't have to be particularly blessed or special born into any type of privilege? You really can do it and bring them along for the ride. So in April, we open up ownership access to our real estate portfolio, targeting specifically first-time investors and people of color and non-accredited investors. That means, you know, basically, historically, people who got access to these type of deals had to partner up with someone, or if you just wanted to invest in them, you had to be an accredited investor, which means you have to make $200,000 a year, be a millionaire, one of the two. And that's what we did. And we helped create 2,000 first-time investors of color and set a record for the fastest company to sell a million dollars in micro shares for real estate. And then we just recently closed on an acquisition on a partnership to develop $477 million worth of real estate. So and since 2016, when I did my first deal, and to 2017, when I actually decided to like, do this like, for real with myself, my dad, and my nephew, who, by the way, I got to shout him out. As of the time of this recording, he plays for FC Barcelona. He scored twice, and he did one assist, and he allowed Barcelona to get to advance from the group in the Champions League. I got to shout him out. So three of us, and uh, not that it means that he came with a lot of money. We saved, we had our own money, which was very little. 850000 As of today, we have $50 million in assets under management, and around 1,200 units in our portfolio. So that's the long and short. And our goal is to help 100,000 people become first-time investors. And by 2030, 
help them become millionaires through his journey of real estate investing. So that's what it is, like a real life wealth lab, if you will. That's me in a nutshell. We have a lot of different things that we're going to talk about today from everything you just talked about. There's a lot to dive into. But the first thing that I want to start with is your book called Real Estate Wealth Hacking. You wrote in this book about the power of leverage and how $10,000 became $100,000 overnight. Tell us a bit about what leverage is and how it can turn $10,000 into $100,000. Well, very simple. For some of those to me, you know, people who listen to you to me be familiar with Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then one of the things he talks about in this book is that there's this misconception that debt is bad. And I keep hearing this, oh, how do I own my property if I don't pay it off? Well, the bank doesn't own it. You own it outright, even if they give you a loan for 90% of the value, which would be like 10000 200000 You own it outright. They just gave you a loan with collateral in the property that you own outright. People don't understand that debt is literally the secret weapon to building any type of billionaire fortune. If you go on and it's public information, if you go on Yahoo Finance right now and you look at Apple and Amazon, two of the most valuable companies in the world, you'll see, and you go look in their financials, you'll see exactly how much debt they have. Debt isn't a bad thing. Consumer debt, high interest debt is a bad thing. Having intelligent debt that allows you to generate more cash flows than your cost of capital, that's good intelligent debt. So now back to your question, how does 10,000 become 100,000? With leverage, you, let's say you use 10,000 and you get, typically it's, it's, it's 20% down, or you can even start investing with 3.5% down. But there's, you can bring 10,000 to the equation and with debt, control a $100,000 asset, whether it's through building something new. But that's the concept of leverage. If you take your equity, which is the cash that you have, get a lender to compound the buying power of what it is that you brought to the table, and then you go out and buy something. The largest funds in the world that may raise $100 billion, let's say a Blackstone, they may raise $100 million, a billion dollars, and then they'll get $9 billion from the bank to go out and buy $10 billion worth of product. This is how you leverage. And this is how you leverage, and this is how you can turn something into more. So even with uh, the way that I started, was, which was with an FHA finance property, three-family property, uh, not too far from here, 750000 three units, and 3.5% down. Started there. That grew in value, went from there to where we are now. So that's the power of leverage. That's that, and that's what I try to explain in the book, that what you've been taught about, the word debt just carried this bad connotation, but it's, if you remove that bad connotation, it's financing. And financing is what you hope to get, oh, give me a loan, or I need an investor. That's, another, that's equity financing. It's another form of financing. And debt, in that sense, leverage, it's just that. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that exactly what you just said is where I kind of part from Dave Ramsey. So I actually believe in a lot of what Dave Ramsey says, but I disagree with him in the fact of investment properties in real estate. You know, he's no debt at all. And I agree with the no consumer debt, just like you said. I don't think consumer debt is good. But when it comes to real estate having an investment portfolio, I think it is okay to have debt. You got to make sure the numbers work. But if the numbers work, I think debt can be great. It is great because just think about it. You always, you just want your cash flows to outpace your debt service. Once it does that, you're making a profit. Someone said to me, and it comes like, but what about what I pay all the money that I pay after 15 years or 20 years or 30 years? I'm like, so what? If it'll cost you $5 to get 100, but from that 100, you make 10, you still made a $5 profit that you wouldn't have otherwise. You see what I'm saying? So it's just how you maneuver your money intelligently. When people get in trouble, if they're too highly leveraged, just like you said, Let's say you are, what happened in the crisis was with these single family homes that don't have an income producing component to them anyway, 
is that they underwrote these crazy loans where they were 100% LTV, which means you have a loan for, let's say, 1.1 million when it's only worth a million. You owe the bank now. Now you're in the bad kind of debt because number one, the asset won't make money for you and you have no way of catching up. You're underwater, as they say. So I think, yeah, this is probably the best thing that you can do. And it is logically speaking, every single billionaire fortune. If there's one out there that exists, I'd like to know who it is and I'd like to see how. Outside of Vladimir Putin, perhaps, but just a billionaire fortune that doesn't have a large degree of debt that allowed them to get to that spot in the first place. I think the other important component is having reserves. I mean, having debt can be great. It can cut the other way too. So leverage is great on the way up, but it can cut down too. So we got to keep that in mind. There is a component of risk to that. But how you can combat that risk and hedge that risk is by making sure you have reserves. And I've talked about that here on the show, how when we hit the pandemic, I wasn't really super worried for my rental properties because I had almost nine months or almost 12 months of reserves that I could cover all the mortgages just in reserves. Right. That is the risk factor because if you don't have reserves, if a tenant doesn't pay, and then you're responsible for paying the mortgage with the, you know, if the tenant is late or whatever, then you might run into problems. As long as you have reserves and you have that there, you'll be in a good spot. You'll be in a good spot and you continue to leverage intelligently and build your portfolio. And you mentioned about billionaires and ultra wealthy having a lot of debt. And that brings me back to, I had the opportunity to sit down with Robert Kiyosaki. I was able to talk to him for about an hour, hour and a half. And you know he wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad, the book on real estate. If you ask any real estate investor, they've pretty much read that book. And he told me in his interview that he has a ton of debt. You know, he said it's good debt. You know, he talked till he was blue in the face about hating student loan debt, which I agree with, and consumer debt. But he, you know, he's like, I love my debt that I have on my real estate portfolios. It, it makes me money. Exactly. That's the whole point there. I'm curious as to why Dave Ramsey would say no debt on properties. Because number one, if you're dealing with investors, one of the things that allow you to raise money is that you got to hit return metrics. The more equity you have, meaning the less debt you have, the lower your returns are, meaning your return percentages. The more debt you have, the higher returns become. So it's like, I'm curious, why did he say that he didn't want any debt on the properties? He's just completely against debt altogether. He just is blanket statement, no debt, period. And I mean, to your point, I, I would love to see, and I've said this a couple of times, I'd love to see Dave Ramsey's financials because if you follow him at all, he has a beautiful facility for his business. You know, I assume he probably has a pretty nice house. I'd love to see if he personally has any debt on that business property because it's probably a couple multi-million dollar property, and I'd be curious to see if he has debt on that, and you know, even his personal home. Just not liking something doesn't mean you won't take it because I have not to get into this into a detour, but it's just so hard for me to see how any type of uh, millionaire, let's call it fortune or portfolio or asset holdings don't have any degree of debt on them. Jeff Bezos uses a credit card. This he says. You know, there, there is, it's just part of how money works. It's just part of the system. Obviously, you want your assets to be more than your liabilities. That's a given. That's obvious. But it, it is a part of how you leverage. But you know, it would be interesting to your point to, to see that, whether there's something there. One of the issues with debt is that not all new investors actually have access to this credit. So how can people get around credit limitations? You know, it's funny. I checked my credit score for the first time a week or so ago. I never, ever used it. I've had one credit card because I started out without a social security number. I didn't even exist in the system. And I just had to find a way to get around it. And whenever the subject came up, I would just go, look, I'm a foreign investor. If we're having a conversation, because we own the whole portfolio free and clear, no debt on the portfolio. We had no debt on the portfolio, actually. That was one of the advantages we had. So if somebody, when I went to go shop for financing, 
to actually do my construction, I would just tell them, if you're talking about credit, I'll just go somewhere else. I have a portfolio with no debt on it. Super clean deal. This deal would make money. Do you want to make money? Do you like to make money? On top of that, you have a well-capitalized management team. And if you don't believe me, you can go look them up. And I point to like my dad and my nephew and you know, myself to some degree. And then, and then that's like, look, you just go look it up. It's not like you can't find information about us. Do you want this deal or no? So I just never actually got to that. And some people might hear this and think, well, you had this advantage or this and that. That's not the point. It's that most people, it's something I always say, most people overestimate others and underestimate themselves. In any type of transaction, interaction, there is some sort of leverage, somebody that holds a position of, of power or perceived power. So when there's a situation like that, you always have to figure out where do I have a position of strength and play to that. So if somebody says, well, credit, what's your credit? I said, forget about credit. You have a debt-free portfolio of quality product in Philadelphia, New York City with a well-capitalized founder team. Do you want this deal or no? Now I just remove that potential roadblock and turn it into a different conversation. And you can do that with so many things in life where you can shuffle what you think is the, the position of power and leverage, different kind of leverage in this case, not that, but leverage where you actually hold the position of perceived power, if you will. We're human beings. You can always shuffle that. You just got to figure out where you have a position of strength. And you will always be able to find one because if you didn't have one, you wouldn't be at, at the table in the first place. So it's just a matter of unearthing where that position of power lies. And that's what you can do. So that's how I got around it. I just don't, I always find, okay, where is it that I have value in this equation? And then I render that objection moot. And if it turns out there's nothing there, I'll just go to the next person. And again, I'm in the position of power because I hold the options. And once I hold the options, they potentially lose business and lose money. Ergo, I now hold the position of power. So this is always a way of, of reshuffling it in your direction to your advantage. This is business. Yeah, arguably more than ever, there are plenty of options for financing. I mean, there are so many. Absolutely. Look, here's another thing. People overestimate money. Money is a currency, okay? There's lots of currency out there. That's what I say when somebody comes in and they talk. I'm like, people with the money, they will sometimes talk as though they have a position of power. And I was like, stop, stop that. Stop that right there. You are just currency. You need opportunity. Then I highlight what the opportunity is. And I'll present it in such a way where they go, okay, this is an opportunity. There's plenty of money out there that want to find you. Just like you said, there's plenty of people that want to lend against you, especially if you have collateral, where it can become a risk, a low risk proposition for them, and where they can charge you extra just because you don't have anything else. That's a great business model. That's a great. So like you said, there's plenty of financing options out there. Absolutely. You have a blueprint for turning $500 into a million dollars in assets in 18 months using a six-step plan. Walk us through each step of that six-step plan. When I say 500, the reason I put it that way is for a very particular reason. I created a video like this for Instagram as well. People feel as though a million dollars is this elusive marker, like where the grass turns green, where all your problems go away, your life will become better, and you magically become into something you wish you were but never felt you could be. That's how people associate a million dollars, especially people that don't feel like they have enough. That's the marker. That's why I put it 500 to a million dollars. Not that it's inaccurate. It totally is. And I'll get to that in a second. That's why I did that. The reason I coupled it with 500 is because everybody knows what it feels like to have 500. You know what 500 can buy you. You know how far it gets you. You know how quickly you can blow it. And everybody knows the emotional feeling of having 500. They don't know the million dollars. They just think it's what I just mentioned, right? So I say, no, it's not like you'll have a million dollars in cash. However, you take that 500, 
And the way I broke it down is using the concept of leverage. I said, look, if you put three and a half percent down to buy a million dollar property, that's around $35,000, not around. That is $35,000 and change with whatever else comes with the transaction. And the way that I broke it down is like, look, take 500, save it up for six months. You can find a way to do that. 500, save it up. You now got 3,000. Find nine other friends that you're doing this with. Now we have 30,000. Now with an FHA payment, and, and look, obviously 10 people can't sign on an FHA loan. I get that, but there's ways that you can structure that if you really, really wanted to. Or the principle is that that money now goes towards a down payment. With leverage, that can become just south of a million dollars. With little things, managing it correctly, you can refinance and you have a million dollar asset. That's literally how I put it together. Like save up 500, six months, find nine other people to do the same thing. And now you collectively have enough money to own and control a million dollar asset or very close to it. So that's how I broke it down. And once you break it down into digestible parts, because everybody can understand 500, everybody can understand saving. Now, what I really taught them in that example, they think I just coupled five, because everybody thinks, oh, you can flip money like it. Money doesn't work that way. So I took the 500 that everybody knows and the million dollars that everybody wants, put it together. But what I really taught you was one, leverage, two, private equity, three, establishing uh, positive habits of saving, budgeting, and four, finding the right people to be around that share the same mindset as you, because you know this as well as I. If you're around poor people, you become what? Poor. If you're around drunk people, you become a drunk. If you're around people that have the same mindset as you, you will automatically get rid of those that are not on the same wave as you. But if I were to use words like private equity and leverage and this and that and budgeting, no one wants to hear it. So that's why I put it in that way. It's all about bringing the information in a way that a person will receive it. And once they receive it, they don't even know. If I told, started talking to somebody about private equity, automatically they've been, probably been taught, wait, this is money. This is high level finance. This is Wall Street. This is not me. So it's already being rejected as is, right? But the way that I precision is something that I can relate to. I know 500. I'd love to have a million. I piece them together. But the underlying information is those concepts that I just mentioned, private equity, budgeting, this and that and the other. Some very important concepts that you need to have embedded in you to become successful. And once they recognize them again, they're like, wait a minute, I understand this. This makes sense to me. And they won't even know why. So that's, that's why I did it in the way that I did. And if you actually read the steps, I break it down that way. And each step of the way, you can actually follow. Wow, I get closer and closer. And then I also break down that a million dollars in assets doesn't mean that you're a million dollars in liquid, which also helps articulate some of the misconceptions about money. Because they're billionaires. Kanye West is an example who was a billionaire. And I said, I'd be shocked if that guy has 20 million in cash. And I said that to people, and they said, he has 17 million in cash, they said. I'm like, okay, it makes a lot of sense. Of which, 15 is probably in stocks, cash equivalents. You know, so I try to explain to people, just because you're a billionaire doesn't mean you just have a billion dollars lying in the bank. That's not how money works, right? So that was the blueprint why I articulated it that way. And that's how I show people to get to that point. And the reason why I know it works is exactly what I did. Bought something, we put down 25K around there, bought it for 750, and it went to 1.2 million. So essentially, that's what happened. I heard a funny story once about the difference between net worth and liquid cash. And it was with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. And I'm probably going to butcher the story a little bit because it's been a while since I heard it. But basically, the story went, you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are best friends. Bill Gates' mom introduced the two and thought they should become friends. Anyway, they became really good friends. And they were going to an event together. And I think they were taking a taxi or something along those lines. They had a driver for whatever reason. They were going to an event. and 
if anybody follows Buffett, they know that he gets the same thing from McDonald's every morning, Coke and a, believe yeah. an egg sandwich or something along those lines. Anyway, they stopped at McDonald's on the way and neither of them had any cash. And so the driver actually had to pay for their food. And in, in the backseat of their car, there's collective probably $500 billion yeah, in net yeah, worth. Yeah. yeah. And none of them had the cash to actually pay for a burger to come. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's, that's just a funny story that illustrates the difference between net worth yeah, and liquid cash. I love that story. It absolutely does. So many of the people listening to the show today have heard of house hacking. And I'm assuming that that's going to be the answer to the first part of my next question. But I'm not sure of the strategy or answer behind the second part. So how can someone listening to the show live rent-free while 10xing their net worth? Look, if you're in a position where, let's say you started with I want to make sure I answer this correctly and, and with mathematical precision so I don't steer off of what it is that you asked me. Let's say that you went ahead and did that. Let's say it's the two of you that put together 15K and 15K and you went ahead and you got a property and, and it got to the point where your equity, let's just, just use numbers like you had $300,000 worth of equity. Now, between the two of you, that's 150 each. You've 10x your net worth. But if it's a proposition, if it's a, obviously it has to be a really good property, but let's say you have four units, you live in one, you run out the three of them, you fix them up. I'm just throwing out numbers here. Let's say the property is uh, worth $700,000. You live in one, the payments from the tenants are enough to cover your expenses, just cover your mortgage, then you fix it up so you increase the value of the property. You force the appreciation of the property. Even though you're basically breaking even on the cash flow, the value of the property, let's say you now refinance at... Uh, you refi at like 1.1, 1.2, whatever, and you take out a new mortgage for like 900000 pay off the old one, and you have 300000 just for the sake of the numbers here, you have 300000 left over, and you came to the deal with 15 k each. You've now 10 x your net worth, and you live rent free, and you continue to do that. Now, you can pull out some money. You can put that to invest, and if you're a real boss, you don't go live in a crazy condo. Not yet anyway. You just go stay right where you are, and... Pretend as if you're still broke, in a sense, and barely breaking even because that's how you start to save and bring more resources. And you just deploy your money to continue to building your portfolio. And before you know it, you have enough of a portfolio where next time you refinance, you can take out money to pay for your year, or you'll have enough units where it's just cash flowing, giving you passive income, depending on which strategies that you have. So that's the one way. And it's actually not rocket science once you just understand the rules. That's what I always say. Wealth is a function of... Uh, Number one, uh, conversation around dinner table is one thing to say, but it's also seventh grade math and a set of rules. You just have to understand the rules. That's really it because the, the math is seventh grade. There's nothing complex about the math. You just have to understand how it's applied. That's it. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd quantify or classify myself as the boss status yet, but I am closing on my third house hack in two weeks. So uh, yeah, that'll be my third one. So I'm excited. Really? Where is it? It's in New Hampshire. I live in New Hampshire. So I'm about 45 minutes north of, of Boston, the city. So I think it's a great strategy. I always recommend everybody ask me, where do I start in real estate? I say house hacking every single time. That's what you should do because then people ask me, what about grants for the down payments? If you cannot save up 3.5%, this is not for you. Because I want people like, 3.5% is not a lot. And just get into the habit, develop the discipline. Because if you save up for six months, you know, what is it, how does the saying go? It takes like, how many days to form a habit and X amount of days to form a lifestyle? If you're saving up to six months, you don't even know it, but you're creating a new lifestyle. You're going to create new people that have the same lifestyle. Voila. You all of a sudden have a wealth building mindset around you. The conversation around you is going to change. It's going to be different. And that's why I say it's such a good thing. Save up to 3.5%. Find other people who want to do that and who do that. And then just 
go the route that I did and that you've done. I agree. And I think that the dollar amount, it can be a lot to people, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot. And I'm going to use my example of my house hack that I'm buying to break it down. So I'm buying a $350,000 asset. It's a duplex. Total, I have to bring to the table with closing costs and down payment, $11,000. Now you might be wondering, how is that possible? So all in down payment and closing costs, I think is around 20,000, maybe a little bit more, maybe 21,000 or so. But what I've done is I negotiated a seller credit. So they're giving me back $10,000. And I can talk about this more in a Q&A for everybody listening. If you're interested, let me know on Instagram. But basically what's happening is they're giving me $10,000 cash back. So rather than having to bring $21,000 to the table, I'm only having to bring $11,000 cash out of my pocket and everything else is financed. So yes, $11,000 is probably a lot of money to a lot of people. I get that. But in the grand scheme of things, $11,000 isn't a ton of money. And I think if you really are determined and want to figure this out, you can find $11,000 to control a $350,000 asset. Of course. If someone tells me, look, bring me $11,000, I gave you $350,000. Without selling the particulars, like, they will come up with that money so fast. So maybe that's the pitch. But even so, it's less than $1,000 a month for a year. Now, if you really are serious about the rest of your life of having financial freedom, just invest or sacrifice the next 12 months to save up not even $1,000, whether it means no partying, not buying clothes, not going on any trips. Basically what we've had to do on this whole year anyway. Okay? Just do that. Pretend that it's a remix of 2020. Another year of living like this, where you just save up, save up, save up. Right? And then go for it. I don't think it's an unreasonable request from the future you to make to yourself. In fact, I think it would be unbelievably selfish of you not to do it. But let me just keep my personal opinion to myself. But I would say the future you will thank you. And the future you, if you don't do it, will be mad at the present you for not doing it because you'll realize how little time it actually is. Yeah, I agree. And it really comes back to education because this concept of getting a seller credit is really not super complex. Not everybody knows about it. How did you negotiate it? So this is kind of going back to my first ever property. I bought my first property when I was 20 years old. I hadn't even walked at my college graduation yet. And I had bought, bought my first property. I love it. I didn't have a lot of money. I was a college kid. How was I going to buy this? So I started researching. I did have the benefit of being a loan officer, but that wasn't by luck. I put myself in that position to become a loan officer. And so I kind of learned and I'd studied a lot. I've been super into these topics. So I was reading, 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 getting super educated like anybody else can do. And I just learned that there was this thing as a seller credit. And I said, well, this is how much I need to get down for a down payment and closing costs. I don't have that money. So what can I do? Learned about seller credits. I did that on my first property. I've done it on every property since. And so basically, I went into this property. I said, these numbers make sense at this price. So I offered that amount. I said, hey, I want a $10,000 seller credit. And that was really it. I mean, the seller agreed to it. It's not really $10,000 cash out of their pocket. It's just reducing essentially of their selling course. price. So they're open to it. Of course. Everybody would chop 10000 off. They expect to. It's a lot easier to negotiate money that isn't in your hand. You know this yourself. Like The banks figured it out by giving you cards. So that you don't psychologically have to go in your pocket and then go out and feel like your pockets are lighter. With plastic, you remove all that. It's ingenious, really. So of course, like it's, it's, it's very simple. Yes, that credit, because again, that's twice the amount you would have to bring to the equation and just ask for it. If that's the deal breaker, come on. And you can go over asking too. I didn't specifically in this deal, but how I approach these usually is I say, okay, this is asking. This is what I want for seller credits. And if I add those seller credits on top of the purchase price, 
do the numbers still make sense for me as the buyer? If they do, then I set that as my ceiling and say, okay, well, I'll go up to this amount because how it works is you get the purchase price minus out the seller credits. That's what the seller gets. And so for me, if this didn't happen in this case, but say they're asking 350000 I want 10000 back in seller credits. I would offer them 360 for the property, tell them I want 10000 back in seller credits. They still get their net asking price of 350 I get my 10000 at closing, so I have to bring 10000 less to the table. Now I'm only going with 11000 and everybody is happy in this deal. Now that's so smart because I didn't even think about that. It's like, okay, let's just go above asking and reduce it back to where you wanted to go. And you've effectively reduced the closing cost, which effectively renders that excuse. Because a lot of people say, I put out the FHA example and said, what about closing costs? I said, look, closing costs is a deal breaker. And that doesn't take away from the larger point of the example of leverage that I'm trying to convey to you. But that's just a beautiful, beautiful response to like offer 10K more and ask it back in the seller credit and boom, it's gone. That's ingenious. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. I talk about how the asking price of a property that you're looking at buying is almost a figment of your imagination for the most part. A seller can ask whatever they want for that property. It doesn't mean that... like. So I talk about how you can pay more for a property than they're asking. It doesn't mean you got a bad deal. And you can pay less than asking and you can still get a bad deal. So for me, I don't care what they're asking. I know what my numbers are. This is what I have for cash. This is what I'm willing to put in the deal. This is what the numbers make sense for me. I can pay this much. These are how much my mortgage is going to be versus the income. So I know what my max is. And then I make a deal based on that with seller credits and make the numbers work. And if it works, it works. I love it. That's a really good idea. I'm going to share that. That's a really, really good idea. Thank you. I appreciate that. So back in February of 2020, you partnered up with your nephew to start the development on the first smart home project in Philadelphia called The Temple. Tell us what a smart home project is and then give us an update on how this project has progressed throughout the year. I literally just returned from it 30 minutes ago. Myself and my friend, he's like the CEO of Nooklin, which is a New York Times called Match.com for roommates. And they're like a leading tech brokers. I think the fastest growing in Brooklyn. Let me find this here so you can actually see. This is what it looks like now. This is phase one. Phase two is across the street. This has 17 leases. Across the street has 80 or 85. But uh, yeah, we started it then and we're pretty much done. To answer your question, it's just we have a, a tech stack. It means there's going to be AI in terms of how we manage it. And of course, basic voice AI. Then we have uh, some really unique just access keys uh, and locks that you can do with tap your phone and you can go right in. You can have codes where, see, this removes some of the need for maybe people to, for an agent to be present to lease it out because they can get a one-time code and we can monitor who uses that code. They can go in and check it out, in and out. Maybe a resident can show them around, like, this is what it is. And it's going to be more of an unbiased, perhaps biased, assuming they love it, but it's going to be not from an agent that's trying to sell you stuff, but from a resident. There's some many cool things we can do just the smart home tech devices and technologies that we have out there that a lot of landlords and property owners aren't using, developers aren't using it because they're already making money. When you see people being lazy about stuff, because we went down in Philly, it's like the marketing is like, by Temple University, they have historically for the past few years had close to pretty much 100% occupancy, which means that it works, people are making money. So there's not really a, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Whereas we come in there and I build stuff that I would want to live in. So I'm thinking of all these details. Right now I have, if you see behind me, I have these cue lights that you can control with voice and they go like this and you can change the colors. So I'm like, I want my tenants to have that. I'll go like this. 
You know, I want my tenants to have that. And even the way that we do the rentals, that we don't think of it as a evil landlord, tenant, you know, that inherent power relationship, even though that it, there is a transactional relationship, we reposition it as memberships. So it was like almost a membership of a social club. The way we created this property, not only is it a smart tech property, but we're targeting the entrepreneurship community, like people like myself, yourself, almost like a hacker house of sorts. But instead of just like coders, it's uh, you live there, you have the community, you have the amenities. If you want to be an investor, a business owner, a tech CEO, this is the type of place that you would want to live. And that's effectively how we do it. And then in addition to, to living there, mentorship, advisory, assisting you with, with starting a business, getting networking, starter kits, iPads, stuff like that, that you can work in an intelligent way. And here's the kicker. Once you stay there for more than an extended period of time, you can become a shareholder. Part of your rent goes to buying shares in the building. So you actually co-own the buildings with us. So one of the things that we talked about when my friend looked at it's like, I want a big sign, look, banner here, myself and my nephew, who, by the way, just scored two goals. Did I mention that? Two goals were Barcelona and get them in there. I think I did, but it's worth saying again. And an assist, by the way. And put there, live with us, own with us. Just to create that feel. On top of that, there's that. It's backed by our mission, of course, to create millionaires. So it just it underscores and supports that whole mission that we're on. And it repositions and sort of rethinks the landlord-tenant relationship. So it's the technology, but it's also more like a social club that you live in where you can create more millionaires. Like we have them on Instagram. We have them on social media. Now we actually have them in, under a roof where we can actually help them get to the place that they want to go. So that's effectively it. But yeah, that was, that was then we, we broke around and uh, we're ready to lease it out. And like, uh, we literally came back from there and we're building the website and getting it ready to go. I think we can shadow lease of records for this one. I'm actually really excited for this hypothesis alone. So I could be totally wrong. When I have this feeling, I really am. And I'm putting myself on the spot here when this is out, because we will know whether I'm right or not. But I think we can actually close to double what others are getting just because of this social club component. A student is for students around Temple University. We're not selling the kids, we're selling to the parents. And they have to know and feel comfortable that number one, their kids are safe. Number two, that they're in the best environment to succeed because they're paying a hell of a lot of money for their kids to go to college. And three, feel like they're responsible and great parents for splurging for the best for their children. That's what it is. That's the pitch. I think the component of becoming an owner of the property as a tenant, I think that's really cool. I don't think I've ever heard of that from a guest. I think that's really, really cool. And it's kind of funny that we're talking about this tech component of it because I've conducted probably close to 150 interviews between my two shows and no one except for one person has talked about tech and real estate. And I've always had the opinion, I'm a very tech-enabled guy. I love tech. I'm, yes. I'm a millennial. I love tech. I've always been about yes. it. I'm not super great with it. I'm, you know, I'm not a tech guy, but I love all tech. Right now, we're not in each other's physical presence. Tech enables everything we do. Exactly. And as a real estate investor, I've always felt that real estate lacked that technology component. Absolutely. So it's funny to hear from you because like I said, 150 interviews. And then I did an interview yesterday or a couple days ago, and then one with you today. And the first two guys ever talked about tech and real estate were back to back. So it's kind of funny. Who was that you spoke to? His name's Peter Politis. And what he's doing is... And I would highly recommend that you check out the episode when it comes out. Not just because it's my show, but because this has probably been one of my favorite podcast episodes that I've ever recorded. I just think the concept is super cool. But basically, what he does is he builds ground-up developments, brand new, like state-of-the-art. You should see some photos of these. They're absolutely beautiful, incredible, and in major metros like downtown Miami, downtown Denver, downtown Toronto. And they're just gorgeous. But what they do is you get you have a bracelet or on your phone, you can get into the property as your key, just like you were saying. 
It's good for a set period of time, so you can go in and out, but it's co-living. So it's essentially a rent-by-the-room strategy. And so you have a, a common area, living room, and then each there's a couple different bedrooms and every person has their own bathroom. But there's a ton, a ton of tech that goes into it. And I think it's really cool. So it's just kind of funny that 150 episodes, nobody had it. And then two people back to back do the same thing. Well, yeah, that's the way. That's exactly how we do it. And we're just looking at how the competition does it. What they sell in their amenity package. One of the things that they sell in their amenity package is some of those throwaway items and ours. And on top of that, you can't put a price on feeling, environment, feeling, it is just extremely like the people that invested with us. It wasn't necessarily, I learned this later. It wasn't because they thought it was a good deal, which it was because I priced it at a discount specifically so we can make money on the buy. They didn't care. They didn't know, nor did they care. They wanted to get more of that feeling of understanding the concepts, feeling like they're learning, progressing in their journey to become more financially literate, empowered, and eventually free. So that's what they wanted more of. So I'm like, man, okay, this is okay. This is what it is. So I realized you can't put a price on those type of things. And if you can create the right environment for that, I think you can. And it's not just a matter of gouging people, it's creating the value. Because this is where a price is just a function of perceived demand. And I'm not even explaining this right, but I'm just saying, like, people will pay what they feel is worth, and the market will dictate what it is worth because people will say, look, there's one I'm willing to pay for. And I feel like we can really do something really, really unique. And of course, that's our objective to create a healthy, sustainable business model. And I think by adding value that, justifies some of those prices. I think we do some unique things. I'm trying to say it in a way that doesn't make me sound greedy because I want to make sure that we satisfy the demand in the right way. I hope I'm making sense here, but that's what we're going to do. And I think tech and adding that feel to it, I think that's, that's going to be really key. You mentioned earlier in the show that one of your big personal goals is to create 100,000 millionaires through real Absolutely. estate ownership. How are you approaching this goal? All right. So talking about tech, right? So one of the things that we did is we have an app that's coming out where the people that invested in us, they will get access to all of our projects. So now we have a mid-sized development portfolio where we do 25 to 100 units. Then we have a large institutional scale portfolio, which we do with our partner in Texas, Lynn is the name of the company. And the CEO's name is David Lynn. He's a friend of mine also. And those are larger deals, like 300 units, multifamily uh, in that neighborhood. And people can buy into those. Those are more traditional value add deals where you just go in and buy larger multifamily properties, garden style, renovate each one, add value to them, and then like the value, increase the valuation of the total assets. These smaller ones, they'll get access to those and they do that through tech. And what we want to do is we want to have enough product and diversification for them to create an experience that's similar to the Robinhood app, app Robinhood investment app, but just for real estate. So that's what we want to do. The reason we only had 20, it's like 2,100, to get the exact number. We weren't allowed to sell anymore. There was a $1,070,000 cap that you're allowed to under the rules of the uh, SEC. If it wasn't that, we'd have a lot more. By January, we can go as high as uh, $79 million we can allow people to invest in over the next 12 months. So we're going to increase that number dramatically. And the idea is let's get to 100,000 people who then become owners. Because think about this, even if you invest $10, $100, $1,000, once you become an investor and or business owner, you start thinking about money differently. You don't think about $1,000. Okay, how do I blow it so I return to zero? You think about how can I get a yield in this money? If you have $10,000, you definitely don't think. And if you have that investor owner mindset, you definitely don't think, how can I blow this money? You think, how can I turn this into 20? Turn that 20 into 50 and so on and so forth. And that's what we're really trying to do, get more people in, change the way they think about money, provide the environment and the community for them to learn 
get access to information, give them the tools to succeed. One of the things that we're doing, we're teaming up with, number one, our own platform. We're going to eventually start opening up for other people to get access to funding through our platform, same way that we offer people to buy into ours. The platforms that I've worked with, work with Republic and a public uh, platform called WeFunder. Teaming up with them and teaming up with some people that have good projects and even putting my own, if I feel it's a good project, my own name and reputation and know-how and capability to bring that to the equation, bring that on the platform, allow them to go out there and present something that could fetch investor money. Just providing a different access to financing, equity financing. And then the relationship we also have, we have a series of lenders and I'm going to get to the real kicker in a second. We have a series of lenders who will then fund because they have that equity they can bring to the equation and they have the project that can now fund them and then they're off to the race. It's almost like raising people from childhood to adulthood because that's the process. If you're starting from scratch, you're effectively a child in terms of your level of consciousness when it comes to wealth building and bringing you to the point where you're capable because it's not rocket science. It's rocket science is seventh grade math. And lastly, one of the things that we did was, I don't want to mention the name because they want to announce it themselves, but there's a large lender in New York City that's agreed to match up to $5 million. Every investment made by my investor community, they'll match it up to $5 million. And once our investors get their returns, let's say it's $100 and they make $20, so they have $120. They then pay the bank back plus fees. And then they have, let's say, $15 left over just for the sake of math, which they then keep. So this is another way to continue to leverage their buying power. They'll match it. We have another fund that offered to match it today. I'm not going to name names because who knows? Expressing intent does not mean a deal is closed. So, but I'm just saying, this is one of the things that we're doing. And we want to get a lot of banks to come along and do that and help empower these people who may not have done it. Because if more people have access to wealth, more people build wealth. My hope is, and my perhaps naive idea is that if more people have wealth, and are focusing on those type of things, you'll have less time to focus on banalities. And people tend to be upset when their belly's empty. But when your belly's full, I mean, you're too busy kicking back to be angry about stuff and, and doing bad things. So that's one of the ways we're going about it. What has been the biggest thing you've personally learned during COVID-19? And what are you doing to better yourself? Oh my God. All right. So one of the things I didn't realize until I was 36 years old, that people cared about what I had to say. Do you know what's crazy? One of the biggest things is I said to Martin, my nephew, I said, yo, can you help me get to 10,000? Because he signed with Barcelona. His following jumped from 31,000 followers to like, he has 820,000 followers, probably more because he scored today, less 800 and some thousand followers. Shortly after when he had a couple hundred, I said, dude, can you like post me in your stories so I can get to 10,000 followers? Because once I get to 10,000, I can start to link to my stories and I need to promote our building. He said, I'm supposed to cut it, but you don't need me to. It's like, you're already there. He's like, you're already it. That's what he said to me. And it clicked to me. It's like, all right, I'll get to 2,000 next week by myself. Then I did a video that got picked up by page, had 300,000 views. Next thing you know, I had 10,000. And then it grew to like, I think I have 69,000 followers now. So I with friends and family. So that's one of the things that I realized that people actually care what I had to say. I did not know that until I was 36 years old. That was a huge personal thing to overcome because I was really shy about those things. I felt super awkward. So that's what now I post videos every day. Imagine that. So growing that, of course, putting that out there with our project, bringing on thousands of people to come invest with us for the first time, being accessible and helping people. That's one of the things I've learned. Of course, the larger deals that we've had and, and just running a team in this environment. Also, it wasn't easy. 
goes back to what I said to you before. Our entire portfolio was all equity. So when it came time to start construction, I said, look, I want to make sure that I protect my downside as much as humanly possible. So what I did was I had a line of credit from overseas, two and a half million at two and a half percent. So I'm like, okay, I can build this all day. And it was not restrictive capital. I can even use that to go out and make uh, bids on other properties. That's one. Then I had a local lender here in America. So I said, it's time we establish some historicity or relationships with U.S. lenders because we're going to need to go forward. Had that lined up, two of them, then COVID hit. Both are gone. Gone. I still got people in the field I have to pay. It was like 134000 a month. So I'm like, okay, this could be serious. We don't know when the banks are coming back, this and that and the other. We still have to figure it out. That was tough, man. That was tough. But we just had to figure it out. Then once we did and the lenders start coming back, then we, uh, we got a new construction loan. And because we had put up some of the money, we had more equity in the deal now. And uh, usually you talked about before you want to have less equity and then you get higher returns. But in this case, it was better because we had to get, because it was COVID, we had to pay a little bit of a premium is what it is. But the numbers worked out and made sense. And here we are. We had two weeks where we had to shut down, two, three weeks, we had to shut down construction, got through it anyway. And here we are. To answer your question, number one on, on the personal side that people care what I had to say and just doubling down on that and just helping people as much as I can. And also just finding a way to, to be resilient and get through those challenges. Once you get on the other side and realize nothing can really touch you. So that's what I've learned. For a new or aspiring real estate investor that's listening to the show today who has big real estate goals like you have, what's the best piece of advice you can give them? Same thing that you say to people who do. Start with an FHA or house hacking as you called it. Start with that. Just go out there and do that. And you will quickly find out if, like, just you can be an active investor or a passive investor. If you're an active investor in real estate, it means you're a landlord, you're hands on, you're there. You can quickly find out if it's for you. If you can deal with tenants and the whole psychology of landlord tenant, that whole relationship, dealing with complaints, dealing with repairs, maintenance, this and that and the other, figure out if it's for you. It's for you, great, double down on it. If you realize it's not for you, would you still like to do real estate? Find somebody who likes doing it, give them money, team up, go Dutch with them. Half and half, you go in there and you make the money, you just stay out of the way. But at least you learn. And that's one of the things I always say with your first deal, I just consider it tuition. You don't necessarily have to break even. You don't have to make a profit. You don't have to break even, even. Even if you're paying out of pocket 500 a month, compare that to what you would pay paying rent. And you got a piggy bank right there that's just accumulating value. Secondly, consider it tuition. You're going to learn so much and basically going to be rewired to the point where you can understand like a lot of nonsense or you can start to foresee things because you really know how it works to be a real estate investor. You really understand the dynamics. You're going to learn so much without even realizing it. And that's what I would say. I would just start there. Because again, with three and a half percent down, come on. And get that seller credit. If the closing costs are too great for you, come on. That's what I would say. Philip, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Where can the audience go to connect with you and learn more about you? You can follow me on Instagram. YFWTB is my handle. I put out videos and content every single day. You can follow what we do, or you can go on 100kmillionaires.com. It like redirects to our website, but it's just nice and catchy. 100K Millionaires, and you can see our new app, our projects, our latest projects, and follow us there. You can find me on Facebook also, where I do a real estate show every week. And also, I have a TV show on uh, Bold TV, which is uh, at Bold TV. You can find it there as well. So. Yeah, that's how you get in touch with me. And yeah, hit me up if there's anything. I try to respond to as many messages as I can. I feel like I'm pretty responsive there. 
just link up with me. And thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. I really love your story and, you, and, and how you empower people and inspire people and the type of people that you talk to and just getting some of those things out to the masses. I love it. Thank you so much for the kind words. I'll be sure to put links to all of those different resources and websites and Instagrams and socials and everything below in the show notes. You guys can go connect with Philip. I'll be joining him on Bold TV in just a couple of weeks. So be sure to check that out as well. Philip, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.